0: Good morning, my name is Daniel. I uh, have the privilege of serving as one of the elders of this church, and this morning we're finishing up the story of Samson, the last of four chapters devoted to Samson's life. So if you haven't yet, I invite you to grab your copy of God's Word and open with me to the passage that Kaylee just read aloud to us, Judges 16, verses 1 through 31. If you don't own a Bible, know that there are some provided on the bar in the room off to my left. We'd love to gift you with one as our gift to you. Like I said before, Judges is the fourth. Uh, Judges 16 is the fourth chapter devoted to Samson's life. It's the last chapter, and and up to this point, uh, we've seen some interesting things in Samson's life. Three weeks ago, Nathan began the story of Samson, looking at Judges 13, the the angel of the Lord coming down to Samson and and promising, prophesying to this guy named Manoah and his wife that although Manoah's wife was barren, she would conceive and have a son and he was to be a Nazarite from the womb meaning he was to be set apart he was not to cut the hair of his head he was not to eat strong or excuse me drink strong drink or have wine he was not to eat anything unclean and the angel of the lord promised to Manoah and his wife that this samson would begin to save israel from the hand of the philistines the philistines who had been ruling over the people of israel at this point for 40 years and although at the end of Judges 13, it, the, the narrative describes that the Spirit of the Lord begins to stir into Samson, and we might think this is promising, this, this angel delivers, this long-awaited deliverer, he's going to be empowered by the Lord, and the Spirit's stirring upon him. Chapter 14 begins by him going to a Philistine town and looking to marry a Philistine woman. He's not seeking to deliver them, he's wanting to marry one. And Judges 14 continues where he's telling a riddle at his wedding, and uh, people answer his riddle by trickery and manipulate Samson, and in a hot anger, he strikes 30 men down and return to his father's house, and Samson's wife is given to his best man. The next chapter, chapter 15, the chapter that Will looked at last week, there's a cycle of vengeance that happens where Samson, because of his wife given away, he goes and he has, he wants to instill vengeance and justice on the Philistines. He captures three hundred foxes. He ties their tails together, he puts the torch in the middle, and he sets them free and burns their crops. Will they get vengeance on Samson? The Philistines burn his wife and the wife's father. Will they get vengeance on that? He strikes a thousand down with the jawbone of a donkey. It's a crazy, bizarre story of going back and forth, but at the end of Judges 15, we see the first time that Judges records Samson calling out to God. Samson's very thirsty. He's tired. He calls out to the Lord. He says, You have granted me this great salvation by your hand. Shall I now die of thirst? And God split open the place, and water came from it, and he drinks from it, and his spirit is revived. And it seems like Judges 15 kind of leaves us at, all right, for the first time now, he is called out to God, Samson has, as Judges has recorded. Is Samson going to change his ways? Is he done chasing women? Is he done with vengeance? Is he done self-serving? Is he now going to finally begin to save the people of Israel from the Philistines? Is this kind of a turning point in his life? In the very next verse, Judges 16.1, he went to Gaza, he saw a prostitute, he went into her. Now, I think it it, it might be important to pause briefly here and, and just Acknowledge that hearing this or reading this in your scriptures is may might make you uncomfortable, it's pretty vivid, it might be a little coarse. Right, hearing about a judge, this man of supposed guy who's supposed to deliver the people from the enemies going into a prostitute that might make you sperm a little bit in your seat as you're hearing that in a sermon. But I think this would be a good time to remind you that as a church, we we preach from, we read publicly, we use the English Standard Version or the ESV. And we do so because it's more of a literal translation and more of a word-for-word translation. And other translations are, more, are, are good for reading through. They some seemingly might be a little easier to read at times, like the New Living Translation. Some of You guys might use that, or the New International Version, the NIV. And these translations, they have the same thought. This is how they translate it to give you a better perspective. They say, he saw a prostitute and he went in to spend the night with her. Right? So it's the same idea, but it's just conveying differently because they're taking the thought and translating the thought. Or he went and spent the night with a prostitute. And that's seemingly a little easier to hear, but in the original language, the Hebrew says, if you were to translate it, he walked Samson, Gaza, he saw there woman prostitute, he came onto her, went into her. So you see how the ESV is more of a literal translation, more of a word-for-word translation. So I just wanted to pause there briefly and explain kind of why the wording is the way it is in this verse, uh, and, and briefly describe this is why we use the ESV. It's more literal, and sometimes it presents some things that we need to study more deeply, but it is more of a word-for-word translation. Does that make sense? Okay. Well, this is very similar, I think, Judges 16.1 to what we see with Judges 14.1, where now Samson goes to a Philistine city. He sees a woman, and he wants her. Right, Judges 14.1 describes Samson goes to the city of Timnah, he sees a woman, and remember he tells his dad, hey dad, get her for me as my wife. But now we see Samson has digressed a little bit. He's gone from not only seeing a Philistine woman and, and wanting her, he's moved from wanting to marry one to simply just hook up with one. Now Gaza was an important city in Amongst the Philistines, it was probably the most distant city from Samson's home, and some people believe that this was a symbol for how far Samson had drifted from God. Samson also would have been a happening place. It would have been a place where you could have gone to satisfy your, your desires for pleasure or sex or self-satisfying, self-serving needs. So Samson knew what he was doing when he was going to the city, in other words. Well, the, the people hear that Samson has come, and they surround and plan to set an ambush for him at the city gate. And they say, let us wait till the light of morning, then we will kill him. But Samson lay till midnight, and at midnight he arose and took hold of the doors of the gate of the city and the two posts, and he pulled them up, bar and all, and put them on his shoulders and carried them to the top of the hill that is in front of Hebron. Now this is not just pulling up a normal gate like your fence you might have in your house or in your yard. These city gates would have usually been about two stories tall. The posts would have been set deeply into into the ground to support the weight of these gates. So to pull these up would have taken great strength. And the distance now from Gaza to Hebron would have been about 40 miles uphill. So this is not only great strength just to lift it out, but the endurance to carry this 40 miles uphill, this is no small feat for Samson. And it seems like this cycle of vengeance that Will talked about last week in Judges 15 is is continuing on. Because as he destroys the city gates, the lords of the Philistines, they come and they want to act vengeance upon Samson. They want to end him. They want to subdue him. They want to capture him. And this is what they do to a woman that Samson loves. They come up to her and they they try to entice her. They say in verse 5, seduce him and see where his great strength lies and by what means we may overpower him that we might bind him to humble him. And we will each give you, to give some perspective on this, the, the ordinary average slave would have been worth about 30 pieces of silver. So this is a huge amount of money that they're giving or promising Delilah if she can subdue Samson. And out of this you know, desire for wealth or power or whatever it might be, she goes to the very next verse. And in verse 6, I don't know if you, you caught this and thought it was a little ridiculous. Please tell me where your great strength lies, Samson, and how you might be bound that one may subdue you. Yeah, I'm not one who normally likes to manipulate people, but I would think if you wanted to manipulate someone and get something out of it, you might want to hide your cards a little bit more, right? This seems so upfront. Well, Samson seemingly plays along with her. He's seemingly having a little fun with her, and, and he lies to her three times in verses 7 through 14. Right, first he tells her, if you bind me with seven fresh bowstrings, then I'll be weak like any other man. So Delilah binds him with these bowstrings. She calls the Philistines and they they set ambush for him. He falls asleep. She says, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. And he snaps them. It says there, that he snaps them as thread of flax snaps when it touches the fire. Secondly, he says, Well, if you bind me with new ropes. And the same thing happens. Then he tells again. and the same thing happens. Right? Samson's having fun with the lie. He's maybe even mocking the Philistines here. Now, seven fresh bowstrings would not have been as strong as seven aged bowstrings, so that is maybe a little mockery in itself, and and maybe he's playing into the Philistines. They thought that Samson had this magical power, and seven bowstrings, which seven in the ancient Near East would have been a sign of per- perfection or completion. Maybe this is the magic recipe that that will subdue Samson. I think it's also important to note that this is yet another violation of Samson's Nazarite vow, as these bowstrings would have come from animal corpses, so he would have come in contact with dead corpses, dead animals. Secondly, it seems that the men of Judah also bound Samson with seven fresh ropes, right? And he just broke them free like they were nothing. The third lie, that the narrator seems to give us a clue, however, on Samson's foolishness. And it's, it was interesting to me as I was studying this that the same Hebrew phrase for made them tight with the pin is the same phrase that was used in the story of Jael and Sisera. Remember that story where Jael drives a tent peg through Sisera's temple? She kind of deceives him and tricks him. That phrase, drove the peg, is the same phrase that was used in both of these instances. So although Samson is seemingly mocking the Philistines, the narrator is showing us that Samson is seemingly too ignorant or too arrogant to... This is, this is the closest thing that we've gotten so far. Is talking about his hair, right? This Nazarite vow. He, like Sisera, will soon too be tricked by a woman and humiliated. And like Samson's wife does to him in chapter 14, Delilah now lays this guilt trip on him in chapter 16. She said to him in verse 15, How can you say, I love you? When your heart is not with me, you have mocked me these three times that you have not told me where your great strength lies. Doesn't this sound similar to Samson's wife' request of Samson as he's hiding the riddle from her? She says, you only hate me. You don't love me. It says uh, in verse 16, when she pressed him hard with her words day after day, the same thing Samson's wife did earlier in chapter 14, pressed him hard. Like Samson caves to his wife in chapter 14, he caves to Delilah in chapter 16 It says his soul was vexed to death. Another way of thinking about that is he was sick to death of her nagging. Uh, yeah. She wore him out. He couldn't stand it any longer. So he told her with all of her heart in verse 17, a razor has never come upon my head. For I have been a Nazirite to God from the mother's womb. If my head is shaved and my strength will leave me, then I shall become weak like any other man. Samson, or Delilah, perceived now that Samson has told her the truth. The whole truth told her with all his heart. She calls the lords of the Philistines. She gathers her money. She makes Samson fall asleep on her lap. She calls a man to shave his head. It says in verse 19, she began to torment him, that is to cause to afflict, to cause great happiness, to render him helpless. She's bringing him down as his head is being shaved. And she calls out to Samson like she has before. The Philistines are upon you, Samson. And he awoke from his sleep and he said, I, I will go out as other times I'll shake myself free. But an important verse in the chapter, the last sentence of verse 20. Samson did not know that the Lord had left him. And the Philistines treat Samson like they would other enemies. They gouge out his eyes. They humiliate him and bring him down where he would be bound in bronze shackles. They, He's grinding mill in the prison. This would have been the, the task of women and slaves. Well, the narrator seems to kind of give us some sort of hope, cueing us in on something in verse 22. The hair of his head began to grow after it had been shaved. Now, there it doesn't tell us why Samson would do this. Why would he tell Delilah the truth? Knowing that each time she has done what he has said. She has bound him. She has called the Philistines around him. Was he so infatuated with her that he didn't care if he lost his strength? Maybe was he so arrogant that if he thought he broke kind of the last strand of his Nazarite vow that God wouldn't do anything, that his disobedience and sin wouldn't really affect him? It does seem like Samson doesn't take his Nazarite vow very lightly. It does seem like he hasn't learned from his past foolishness and he treats this vow and God's word with such flippancy. But The Philistines finally captured, and this is the first judge to be captured, and he suffers the consequences of his foolishness. He's humiliated, and the lords of the Philistines gather a great sacrifice to Dagon, their God, and they rejoice. Our God has given Samson, our enemy, into our hands. They're praising their God for this seeming deliverance that he has given them, and when the people see Samson, they praise their God, for they say, our God has given our enemy into our hand, the ravenger of our country, who has killed Many of us. And after their hearts were merry, or they were in good spirits, in other words, they might have been full. Entertain us. So they bring Samson out and they make him stand between the pillars of the house, which was probably a large temple. We know it was a large temple because it's recorded there that 3,000 men and women were, were there and looked at Samson while he entertained. But Samson directs a young man to place his hands on the pillars where the temple Rested While he's entertaining the Philistines, this chapter, verse 28, Samson called to the Lord and said, O Lord God, O Adonai Yahweh, that some translators translate this, O sovereign Lord, please remember me. And in the Old Testament, but do act on my behalf. Please strengthen me only this once, O God. That I might be avenged on the Philistine for my two eyes. Samson leans and grasps the two middle pillars on which the house rested. He leaned all his weight on them and he cries out, Let me die with the Philistines. He bows with all his strength and the house fell upon the lords and upon all the people who were in it. So the dead whom he killed at his death were more than those who he had killed during his life. Then his family members come and take his body and bury him with his family, and the narrator records, repeats that phrase again, and he judged Israel 20 years. And that's how the story of Samson ends. In Samson, you have this incredibly gifted, powerful man, gifted by the Holy Spirit, called to be set apart and to begin to set deliverance to the people of Israel from the Philistines. But in Samson, you have a man who is flawed, Who did not demonstrate godly character or, or purity? He lusts after women. He treats after he treats his commitment to the Lord flippantly. He disregards the Word of God. Interestingly enough, he kills more Philistines in his death than he did during his lifetime. I mean, what in the world can we learn from Judges 16 and from Samson? Well, the way we've been seeking to make sense of what goes on in Judges and uh, it only gets worse from here, my friends. Uh, 18 through 21, it's dark. We've been asking a, a set of questions to, to help us make sense of what's going on in Judges, to, to ask some questions to get us to think about what we might learn from this passage. And the questions are geared at getting us to think, what does this story teach about God and his character? And, and how does this story tie into the larger story of the Bible? And, and what can we do based on this story? What can we not do? What warnings or encouragements or commands can we learn from this story? So if you have your your handout, your sermon outline, you see that there's those three questions listed on the back there. And the first question is, what does this story proclaim about God and his relationship with his people? I think it's important for us to note the two places where God is explicitly mentioned or where he's called out to to help us try to answer this question. He's mentioned in verse 20 where it, it mentions that Samson did not know that the Lord had left him. God is also mentioned in verse 28 where Samson calls out to the Lord and says, oh Lord God, please remember me and strengthen me. And those are the two places. Right? So based on that, how can we, what can we glean from the story of what does this story show us about how God relates to his people? And I love what Will said last week based off the story of Judges 15, that we have to be careful looking at God's word, and and especially stories like this that are descriptive, that we don't read too much into it. We don't put something in there that the text might not say. That we don't say, well, this is what God's motive was. This is why he did what he did. Remember that, as as he said last week? The narrator doesn't tell us here why the Lord leaves him. The narrator doesn't tell us here why the Lord responded to Samson. Now, you might be able to argue, well, it's because he finally kind of, those the last straw, the Nazarite vow, right? He, he touched dead bodies. He had been unclean, but he, he never cut his hair. So when he finally cut his hair, that's when the Lord left him. So, well, well, why did his strength come back? I mean, was it because that the hair of his head began to grow again? And that's what kind of empowered him. That's why he was able to push those pillars down. The narrator doesn't tell us these things. We have to be careful in coming to the scriptures and to the text. What does the text actually say? What can we learn from this story? What what can we authoritatively stand on? I think there's one clear thing from this chapter. It is God alone who gives and takes away. God is the sovereign Lord. Since the narrator doesn't give us details, our, our motives... We can't say why God did something or why he didn't. We might have ideas or speculations, but one thing we can confidently say from this text is that God is the sovereign Lord. He gives, he takes away. It's up to him. And we know this because Samson's hair is not some sort of magical power that gave him strength. Samson's strength came from the Lord. It came from the spirit of the Lord empowering him. Now I have some ideas why that verse might be in there. Right As mentioned before, it might be because a narrator was trying to instill some hope that not all is lost in the story of Samson, that there w- might be some sort of happy ending or better ending to him just being humiliated and eyes gouged and forced to slavery the rest of his life. It began to grow back. It could have been something that he put his faith in. It could have been something that he relied upon, that in his arrogance and his self-reliance, he could not have cried out to the Lord, but yet he does. He says, O sovereign Lord, O Lord God. What we know about God and his character is that God is sovereign, meaning he is supreme. He is unrestrained, unrestricted. He's not dependent. He has ultimate power. His decisions to give or to take away are free and his alone. His decisions to do or to not to do are free, but in his alone, he's not obligated to anyone or anything at any time. So God would have been totally free to not rescue Samson out of this condition and leave him to be mocked. God would have been totally free to leave Samson the first time he broke his vow. God is completely free to do what he wants, when he wants. He is the sovereign Lord. He alone gives and takes away. God is not dependent upon anyone to accomplish his plan or his purposes. He is the sovereign Lord. Amen? larger story of the Bible, we, we see that in many ways, Samson kind of reflects, he's a picture of the, the people of Israel. One commentator said that Samson was intended to be a mirror for Israel. Samson was raised out of nothing like the Israelites. Samson was richly gifted and called to be set apart like the Israelites. Samson, like the Israelites, messes around with foreign women, foreign gods, and they worship false gods and idols. Samson, like the people of Israel, regardless of their sin and disobedience, just expect God to be around. Both presume and almost become entitled with God's blessing and his presence. They both become self-reliant and ignorant of the dangerous conditions. For Samson is the first judge to be defeated. He's captured, he's humiliated, he's blinded, he's held captive, he becomes a slave. This is what happens to the people of Israel. They are disciplined, they are judged, they are brought to captivity, they are oppressed, they become slaves by the hand of the people of the Babylonians and the Assyrians. And in the redemptive history in this time, the Lord raises up prophets to call the people to repent to explain why the condition that they're in, that's the Lord's judgment, and he's calling, he wants them to repent and return to the Lord. It's because they forsake him and they've worshiped other gods. And although a majority of the prophets deal with this judgment and this warning, there is, there are, that one day there would be a good and righteous king. There would be a deliverer who would do what the judges were intended to do, free the people from the oppressors. This it would be a Messiah. He would be a long-awaited king who would come and establish a, an eternal kingdom and bring eternal redemption and rescue and deliverance. And as you flip through the, the pages of the Old Testament, you get to the New Testament, you see throughout books of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John that this long-awaited Messiah, this long-awaited king, this ruler, his name is Jesus. And he steps onto the scene saying, I am the fulfillment. I am the son of God. I am the long-awaited Messiah to bring sight to the blind. And Jesus comes and he dies on the cross and he raises from the grave and he shows that he is who he said he was. He was the long-awaited son of God, the true Israelite who brings about ultimate and final deliverance through his life, death, and resurrection. So in many ways, Samson represents the people of Israel throughout the story of the Bible. But as we examine Samson's death, we also see that Samson points forward to Jesus himself. And as you compare and contrast Samson and Jesus, there are some cool realities and beauties, I think, of the cross that will stand out. Like Samson, who was betrayed by a friend for pieces of silver, Jesus was betrayed, betrayed by a friend for pieces of silver. Like Samson, who was mocked and tortured and publicly humiliated, Jesus was mocked and chained and publicly humiliated. Samson died with his arms stretched wide. Jesus died with his arms stretched wide on the cross. Samson died, collapsing the temple of Dagon proving that it was God who was faithful, it was God who was most powerful. on its nothing compared to the power of God. Jesus on the cross renders the powers of this world, sin to humiliate, he brings them to shame on the cross. And while Samson points forward to Jesus, he pales in comparison to Jesus. Samson was a flawed man. Soon, with chasing women, he gets captured and dies. In his foolishness, he's mocked and humiliated. but we know Jesus did not die unwillingly. It was the foreordained plan of the Father, and it was by his obedience and according to the wisdom of God, that he was killed. Samson's death was limited. It only began to bring about deliverance from the Philistines. Jesus' death was once and for all, the defeat of our enemies, this world. Samson's greatest moment of his life was his death. His death is what begins to bring about deliverance that the angel of the Lord promised to his mother that he would begin to bring deliverance from the Philistines. Samson's death is what brings about hope through sacrifice, but it points forward to the ultimate self-sacrificial death that brings hope and rescue to God's people because Jesus is the far greater Samson. Jesus' death brings ultimate hope and rescue, but unlike Samson, Jesus did not stay dead. Unlike Samson, Jesus' death is not the end of his rule because after three days, Jesus rose from the grave and he proved himself to have power over the grave. Jesus' death and his rule and reign goes beyond the grave, not just up into it. And Jesus calls those who would Want to be with God, want to follow His way, that you too must take up your cross, that you must humble yourself, that if you would become weak, I would make you strong, that if anyone would come to an end of themselves, they could experience knowing God and being with Him forever. And I believe this story presents this presents both an admonition and an exhortation. This is how we're going to answer question three. It presents a warning because it shows the danger in the foolishness of self-reliance and blatant disregard to God's word and will. Samson told Delilah about his strength as being a Nazarite to God from the womb and yet still fell asleep on her lap. My friends, this is what sin does to our hearts. It deceives us, it lies to us, it lulls us to sleep while we are falling asleep in the hands of our enemy. We who are gifted, who are successful, who have great power, are ignorant to the great danger of self-reliance. We know some of the most wealthy, well-off, successful, comfortable people tend to be those who are most far from God. Why? They don't need him. They can rely upon themselves and depend upon themselves. And my friend, this is a dangerous spot to live in, self-reliance. Self-sufficiency, to, be, to live and act apart from God's word as you, as if you are your own Lord and Savior. Judges 16 presents a warning that do not presume that the Lord will always be with you. Because if you do not repent, there will come a time where you will be apart from him forever. God's word teaches that he opposes the proud. We see that so clearly in the life of Samson. But the second half of that verse that's quoted in James and 1 Peter, I believe is that encouragement or that call that we can learn from the story. Although it says God opposes the proud, the second half of that verse is he gives grace to the humble. Judges 16 calls us to humble ourselves before the Lord, to cry out to him, to put to death ourself and to live for him. We know that becoming a Christian throughout the gospels through Jesus' teaching means that following Jesus, you take up your cross, you follow him, you die to yourself daily, you put to death your selfishness, your self-reliance, your self-righteousness, you put to death the things that are keeping you from following him. You turn from yourself and you look to Jesus and you begin to walk and step with him. Following Jesus means that you admit your sins, which are the things you do that are against God's word, and you admit the things in which you sought to obey God from the wrong motives. Both are sins. One is called unrighteousness, the other is called self-righteousness. And Christians confess both of their unrighteous deeds and their self-righteous deeds before God. They do not seek to take God's presence and grace for granted. They admit that they are totally dependent upon the sovereign Lord. They confess that their gifts, their life, their successes, and their failures are from God alone, and he alone gives and takes away. He alone has that power. They confess that everything good in their life is by grace alone, and everything taken away is also by God's grace. It's a form of his loving discipline. So as Christians, we should read Judges 16 and be humbled as we read the story of Samson and his death, knowing that it is only by God's grace. It is only when we humble ourselves and we see our self-righteousness that enables us to conquer pride and fits of anger and jealousy and strife and lust that we see in Samson. But the story of Samson also humbles us because we know too that we too have sinned against God. We too have lusted after things that are against God's word. We too have acted in ignorance or defiance of God's presence, yet God still hears Samson's prayer. You would think after all Samson has done, the flippancy he's treated God as God's word, the the ways he disregarded his Nazarite vow, yet God still responds and hears his prayer. That should provide great hope and humility to us, shouldn't it? If you are a Christian, a believer in Jesus, are not yet a believer, the story of Samson gives us great hope because it is God's grace that he remembers and hears and responds to a guy like Samson, a fallen, flawed, faithless man, and his grace is deep enough and strong enough to hear sinners like you and me. Friends, in light of Judges 16 and the message of the gospel, in light of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, let's humble ourselves. Amen. Let's examine our self-reliance and our self-righteousness, our sin. And if you're here this morning and you're thinking, I don't even know how self-righteous I am. I don't even know what you mean by that, Daniel. I can't think of my self-righteousness. That's a great way to start. God, I'm so prideful that I don't even see my own self-righteousness. I can provide some examples of how it has reflected in my life. That might be helpful. When I can't think of my own self-righteousness, I confess my pride and ask God to break my sin, remove my blindness, call others around me that will point this out in me. Because oftentimes, sin that goes unconfessed and unrepented of takes root in our hearts and it grows up, leaves that cloud our judgment and deceive us. And we need outside help. From my own life, I can give you examples of where I am most self-righteous when I don't regularly and publicly confess of sin. You know you are self-righteous when you can't think of the last sin you confessed or when you won't confess sins. From my own life, I can tell you that my self-righteousness looks like prayerlessness. Or when I pray, I'm not thanking God for his grace. My prayers sound more like honey do lists and nagging God for just giving me things that I want. I do not praise God for his goodness. Self-righteousness looks like me putting on a face and pretending like I have it all together, hiding secret sin, hiding in brokenness, not wanting to look bad in front of others. I'm doing this as I'm trusting in my own righteousness. Self-righteousness sounds like when you talk about your strengths and your victorious plans and goals apart from God's will and his grace. My friends, do you talk to others about yourself and your life as if you're the hero? Do you speak of or remind, mention, teach others that apart from God's grace, you would be ruined? That's the reality. Do you make plans assuming God's blessing and his success? You Entitled to God's grace? James says it like this in James 4, 13 through 16. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go on to such and such town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. It's your life. For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, If the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. My friends, let's humble ourselves, meaning let's confess of our sin and be open with our weaknesses and our flaws, our self righteousness. Let's not try to hide in who we are and pretend in our own self righteousness. We have the righteousness of Christ. Let us not make ourselves look like the heroes of our lives. It is only by God's grace that we are who we are. It is only by God's grace that we're still sustained and living. Let's not play around with the toys and trinkets of this world consumed with lusts and selfishness and taking God's presence for granted in the risk of losing him. Friends, don't wait till it's too late. If you have not ever for the first time confess of your sins and your self-righteousness and come to Jesus. I do not know what today will bring or tomorrow will bring. You do not know when you will stand before your your judge, your creator and have to give an account. Do not presume upon the Lord's presence because there may be a time if you do not repent where he will leave you and you will leave him. But Christians, let's not get fooled that because we confessed of our sins one time that we're good, right? Martin Luther said, all of life is to be one of repentance. All of life is mortifying sin. As we wrestle and battle with our flesh and our old tendencies, so let us confess and repent of, our, of ourselves, take up our cross, and follow Jesus humbly, self-sacrificially, knowing that it is for the glory of God and our greatest joy. As we ponder and experience and enjoy God through Jesus and the work of the gospel, let us worship the sovereign Lord with more depth, with more passion, with more commitment. We repent and increasingly over time. Amen? Amen? Let's do this by the power of the Spirit and by God's grace. The last thing I want to do from this sermon is say, repent and confess and do it in your own strength. Because that will be just as futile and self-righteous. Let's pray to God now and worship him now that God, we need your help. Break our callous hearts. Let's praise him for who he is. It is you alone who gives and take away. We trust in your sovereignty. We depend upon your grace. We bless you, Father. Let's pray.